Good evening. Great to be with you tonight. We're tackling important subjects that I believe have critical importance, significance in the overall ministry of a church. And these are issues that I think so often Christians tend to want to avoid because we want life to feel good. But we've got to live before the God who is good. And so we have to address these things in a way that truly honor him. Tonight we're talking about comfort care. You're going to hear words such as palliative care and the likes. And so these terms will be defined as we go along. Our format again tonight is this. I'm going to offer you a brief devotional, three to five minutes, to sort of frame the thinking of what we'll be covering tonight from a scriptural standpoint. I'll shift my lectern off to the side. Tonight, Dr. Lyons is the lead in terms of the discussions that will take place in the panel with those that are involved in healthcare matters. So we'll be asking them again to introduce themselves briefly to share the type of medical work that they are involved with. And then as prior weeks, they'll begin with a case study. They'll be discussing among themselves with regard to a particular issue pertinent to the subject of tonight. And then at a particular point in time, we'll transition into, again, a time of Q&A, question and answer for the remaining portion of our time together tonight. So I hope it's beneficial to all. Let me start with a word of prayer and then a brief thought from God's word. Our fathers are coming before you. I'm thanking you for who you are. The ultimate issues of life you not only have explained, but through the second member of the Trinity have experienced. To both explain and experience is a powerful combination of a gracious God. And that's the God that we know, love, and serve, who gave his son to die for our sins. So tonight, Father, in these moments together, we're seeking wisdom, we're seeking understanding, perspective. I pray that you'll guide the panelists and guide as well those that will be asking questions, that they'll ask questions that are pertinent to the whole of the gathering tonight rather than an individualized approach. Questions, Father, that are going to illuminate even further um, your working in our bodies for your glory. Committing now these moments to you in, in Christ's name. Amen. One of the astounding features, again, of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is not only are we given the reason for his death, but we're also given the example of the dying process. Tonight's study, and our case study, revolves around the idea of comfort care, palliative care, and the likes. And you will find that in John chapter 19, verse 28, John would inform us that later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had finished the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. In other words, he allowed comfort care to be part of the fulfillment of the scriptures, leading to the statement, it is finished. 
the dying and the death are tied together scripturally with the principles that he's laying before us. I've had for a long time one foot in the pastoral and one foot in the medical. And because of this unusual background, I I get asked questions that particularly come into play when it comes to the matter of the dying process and death itself. There are three questions, perhaps four, depending upon moments together tonight, two of which I'll simply pose at the start, save the rest for later. Should I ask God to relieve my suffering? Is a question that some will pose in various ways, shapes, or form. When that is being asked, whether it be in a hospital, or home, or elsewhere, if it's a believer in particular, I'll point them to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, where Paul said, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, I want you to remind yourself, if you are going through life-threatening situations, not only that phrase, my grace is sufficient for you, but also the phrase, my power is made perfect in weakness. Three times Paul cried out to God for relief, and the answer each time was no. And sometimes we will find no from the heart of a loving God. Because if he had said yes, he wouldn't have been loving. The flip side, though, is that in Second Kings chapter 20, we'll find Hezekiah having been informed, it's time to put your house in order. And lo and behold, then, as he cries out to God, God then gives him 15 more years. What we're doing then is we're noticing the tremendous tension in the whole matter of approaching God with regard to this whole matter of the prolongation of the days and the relief of the suffering, which perhaps some of our loved ones are experiencing right now. When you wrestle with what should I be asking of God and what should I be expecting of God and how should I pray to God? As you listen to the panel tonight, there are three E's I want you to ponder which I've sometimes utilized, whether it be in funerals or occasionally in the realm of a text on suffering on Sunday mornings that we cover. One is what I will call the E of escape. Some people simply want to escape suffering. One approach is perhaps to be overly medicated. A second E, to endure suffering to be so underly medicated, so to speak, that we put on the stoic front and assume that that's a form of spirituality. Our argument is that we will not use either the approach of escape on one hand or endure on the other hand, but the third E, to enlist. In other words, to enlist suffering in such a way that brings glory to God, but also ministry to other people, that they can they can articulate why you believe what you believe through what you experience for God's glory. Ask yourself tonight, how do we go about in listening in on this case study? 
How do we go about working through the whole process of enlisting rather than merely escaping or enduring? Here's the second question. It will transition to our time tonight. The first was, shall I ask God to relieve my suffering? The second question I often get as a pastor working with suffering people, how can I cope with the suffering God does not relieve? That's that's an important question. What we have to bear in mind is that God's purpose is all good and all wise. Romans 8.28 obviously comes to mind when you and I are talking about believers in general. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It says that God works for the good. It doesn't say that it feels good. But it does say it works for the good. When you and I, then, are ministering to people, let's not assume we've got suffering figured out. What is the cause? What is the effect here? What God was doing in their lives. Let them know that there is a purpose to suffering from an all-wise God. But let's not assume that we've figured out what that particular purpose is. As far as I can determine from the scriptures, there are at least eight different purposes for suffering. In 30 seconds, I'll just click them off. Retributive, where we, so to speak, are being punished for something that we did. But not all suffering is retributive. Educational, where I may be being taught something, or maybe somebody else is being taught something through the way in which I respond to God based upon my suffering experience. Substitutionary. Jesus suffered, dying for us. Empathetic. Where Paul would remind us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that we are to comfort those who, because of the suffering we've experienced, now they have something to gain from the suffering that we ourselves have endured, have enlisted rather. Fifth, glorified. Where God is getting the glory and the suffering, even though you yourself might not necessarily realize the full impact of it. Sixth, testimonial. Job's wife saw a testimony in Job that she rejected in his life. She wanted the God who would emphasize the whole realm of comfort. Job was not so much interested in being comfortable before God as being conformable to God. Even if conformable to God's will meant being uncomfortable in the midst of God's will. That's testimonial. You have a testimony in the way in which you and I enlist suffering rather than merely escape or endure. Seventh, there's a sense where it's revelational. It reveals something about the sum total of God at work. Eighth, still to come, what's called eschatological end time. But what I want to say is that there is grace in the suffering. Look for overlooked realms of grace. Do you realize that medicine is a form of grace when properly administered? That's God's gift to humankind.
Luke was a physician, you know. Listening. Your mere presence. Reading scripture to someone in the dying process. Helping to produce reconciliation between people who are estranged from one another. Music that ministers to the heart where the words perhaps can't penetrate. Remember, as we said last week, the dying process is part of the living process. And when we get a sum total of what the living process involves, we're better prepared to live for God. Some devotional thoughts tonight. I'll turn it over to our men at this table and the lady at this table and uh, the ladies at this table. And Jeff, you are the lead tonight, so I'll let you get things started. Move out of your way. Thanks, Gary. Well, thanks for coming out. And uh, as you know, one of our purposes, our goals, is for you to get comfortable filling out an advanced directive document. And you know that we have them available for you at the back of the table. There's several different options. I did want to point out one um, point, though, is, is if you chose a five wishes document and you picked up a blue copy, that there is a supplemental sheet that should go with it, and it's self-explanatory. So you can pick up either supplemental copy, or you can just pick up a green copy, which has this in it. So we wanted to do that housekeeping measure, and that's done. So I would like to make, could I have the, the second slide? I'd like to make a few remarks about the whole area of comfort care near the end of life. And um, what I'd like to do, uh, could I have the next slide now? What I'd like to do first is to just make a few comments about the end-of-life experience. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and it goes on to say, and after that judgment, to die once, that reassures us that we're going to die. That makes it inevitable that you have an appointment with death. But you don't know when you're going to die. You don't get to choose when you're going to die. You don't get to choose often how you're going to die. You don't get to know whether your death will be quick or whether the dying process will be slower. And you don't get much to say about how the end of life plays out. But for the majority of us, the end will come as no surprise. And therefore, if we choose to prepare, we may receive the cares we hope for as we near the end of our life. How? Simply by preparing an advanced directive uh, document. Sitting down, making your wishes known on paper for your loved ones. And so our purpose for these four weeks, and particularly tonight, is to talk about that process. Um, about the end of life, about providing comfort cares. And my hope is that as we go, as we play out a scenario, you'll come to appreciate perhaps the value of an advanced directive. But let me say some comments about, about care and at the end of life. Now, you've all heard of hospice care, and some of you may have heard of palliative care and comfort care and medical care. It gets confusing, right? So let me start giving you some comments about 
the history of where hospice care all began. It actually began way back in the 11th century. And there were places of hospitality or hostels where, where, where travelers or pilgrim, pilgrimers would, would stop for, for care and overnight, but also for the sick and the wounded and the dying would go to these places. Then in the early 1700s, the idea just started germinating that we use today about, about hospice care and palliative care way back in the 17th century. But it wasn't until the 1950s in England with a, a faith-based gentleman, actually. His name was Dom Cecily Sanders. He ran a, a hospice, and he formulated many of the foundational principles we use today. Now, hospice care in the United States is largely defined by Medicare laws. So in America, hospice, are, hospice care are benefits that you get when you meet certain criteria. And so it gets confusing in America. Other parts of the world, hospice care is more defined as palliative care. But in America, you get the privilege of hospice benefits when you meet certain criteria. And generally, the two criteria you meet are you have a serious illness and you're not expected to live beyond six months. The second criteria is that you are at the end of your life and you are going to be receiving comfort measures, not curative measures. So those are two main points in, in hospice. We talk about palliative care Actually, all the cares that are provided through hospice care are palliative cares. They are comfort cares, so it's a synonymous term. We do have palliative programs developing around the country. We have one in Sheboygan, several perhaps. So you can actually enroll in uh, palliative care benefits uh, from a program, and you don't have to um, have six months only to live, nor do you have to refuse curative treatment for it. But the word palliative comes from the Latin word pallera, and that word means to cloak. So palliative is, is the cloak. It's putting a coat around. It's providing comfort for. That's what palliative means. The area of healthcare that focuses on palliative care really is designed to relieve or prevent suffering, as Gary talked about. A suffering of a person with serious illness. It addresses physical suffering. It addresses emotional suffering. It addresses social suffering and spiritual suffering. It, it, it works to alleviate acute suffering, but it also works to manage and minimize chronic suffering. It's multidisciplinary. You'll see physicians involved with palliative care, nurses, chiropractors, pharmacists, all manner of therapists, pastors and chaplains, social workers, counselors, and of course, family and friends. Palliative care is in contrast to, but not in conflict with, medical care, 
which traditionally has as its goal to provide curative care, although we do both. So in a, in a nutshell, the goal of palliative care is to improve the quality of life of both the patient and the family, to preserve or to restore the patient's dignity. The treatments may be broad, they may be varied, but the goal is very concrete, to bring relief from suffering, to treat pain, and to treat any and all um, distresses or discomforts or symptoms, and to bring psychological and spiritual care or comfort to the patient and family. So that's sort of, uh, in a nutshell, what palliative care, comfort care is all about. Now, I've referred to in my, in my comments that one of the goals of palliative care is to preserve or restore dignity. So we have to ask the question, what is dignity? In the Five Wishes document on page 5, which deals with wishes 3 and 4, there's a statement that you will make, and it says, I want to be treated with dignity near the, near the end of my life. Well, what does dignity mean for you? What does dignity mean? We throw it around. It's a lot like faith. What does it mean? What I've done is I've asked Dr. Tuttle uh, to comment on dignity. And uh, Dr. Tuttle is not only a neurologist, but he is um, the chairman of our ethics committee at Memorial Hospital. He's been the chairman for 30, 40 years? <laughs> Maybe Be- 10. Before we do that, though, let's have the, the, um, the panel introduce themselves. Why don't we start with Jeff and just say who you are and, and briefly what your role in medicine is. I'm Jeff Corrigan, and I'm a family doctor practicing in uh, Manitowoc. My name is Marge Voigt, and I'm a retired RN. And my last job as an RN was as a home health care administrator in Milwaukee. But my passion and care for this ministry has um, just in the last few years been really, the awareness has been raised because God has allowed me to take care of a number of people in their home or my home at the end of their life. And she's also the head of our faith community nursing ministry at the church. I'm Christy Alberg. I've been a nurse for a long time. And currently I'm with Sharon Richardson Hospice. I've been doing hospice nursing for the last three years. Kari uh, Brizla, I practice uh, family practice at the Sheboygan Clinic. And Paul Tuttle, I'm a neurologist also at the Sheboygan Clinic. Why don't you go ahead and give us some comments on dignity? Sure. Uh, I had uh, come across a a, a book that was on my shelf as we were preparing for this week and the last couple of weeks, really. It's entitled Dignity and Dying, a Christian Appraisal. Um, And it's a collection of essays written by Christian doctors and nurses and people involved in in healthcare, especially when it comes to end-of-life decisions. Um, and I, I was sharing that with Jeff, and we, we've had a couple of discussions about what it means to try to maintain dignity um, 
especially as our health is failing, as we are suffering chronic illnesses. And I, I found an article by a Dr. James Avery to be very helpful in this, uh, trying to wrap my arms around this concept of dignity. And Dr. Avery is a hospice physician. He is the head of the hospice program at a hospital in New York. And uh, he tells the story of a, a young woman by the name of Jan. And, and just to briefly summarize, Jan is a young woman with end-stage breast cancer who is at home. And she's, she's really not doing well. She's uh, basically chair-bound or, or bed-bound. She's lost her hair because of chemotherapy treatments. She's becoming weaker. Um, she, she really is not able to really care for herself. She's becoming more and more dependent on other people for basic needs. And this was a, a, a woman who uh, was a businesswoman, uh, married, a wife, a mother, uh, used to be an athlete, and, and she just uh, was seeing her, her health crumbling. And so when Dr. Avery walked in, she said to him, I've lost my dignity, Dr. Avery. She sobbed. I never thought it would happen to me, but I've lost my dignity. So what, what is dignity? Um, the dictionary would define it as the quality of being honorable or worthy, true worth or excellence. And Dr. Avery defines two different types of dignity. He talks about one type that he calls an attributed dignity. So this is a dignity that is attributed to us either by ourselves or by other people. And it's dependent on external things. It, it may be dependent on our appearance, um, our prestige, our status in life, our employment, uh, position in our families, uh, maybe we're an excellent athlete. So that's an attributed dignity uh, that is something that is very fleeting. And as we suffer from chronic illnesses, perhaps a terminal illness, then we see that dignity gradually being degraded. Um, that's the, the dignity that you've probably heard of the death with dignity movement. This is a movement that came out several decades ago. Uh, people who basically uh, wanted to hang on to that dignity uh, as much as they could as their life uh, was slipping away from them. And, and, and that's the organization that basically promoted some of the laws in uh, Oregon and Washington, the right to die laws, death with dignity, that had to do with physician-assisted suicide. Um, they define uh, the greatest human freedom as being able to control your life and also your death. But as Jeff uh, just said, it's, it's rare that we really are able to uh, handle or have uh, really any kind of control over the circumstances of our dying and our death. Um, so, of course, their solution really is to intervene and basically to take their own lives or ask someone else to take their lives. But Avery talks about a different kind of dignity that's different from attributed dignity, and he calls it intrinsic dignity. And as Christians, uh, I think we can relate to that well, because that's the dignity that comes about uh, from the fact that we are creatures uh, made in the image of God. So this goes back to Genesis chapter 1, uh, 
which says that God created man in his own image. In his image, he created him male and female. He created them. So it's this concept of the imago Dei or the image of God. And that's a special type of status that we have as created beings that cannot be taken away from us, no matter what our health is or how poor it is. Um, It's that special uh, dignity that has been enshrined in our country's founding documents and the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. It's also that dignity that um, uh, a group of physicians 300 years before Christ, uh, uh, led by Hippocrates, they came together and they said, we're going to put together an oath that recognizes a special uh, value of human life, that special dignity that, uh, that we should accord it. So we're not going to, we'll take a, an oath not to um, end human life, that we will not participate in euthanasia or abortion. Um, so that's the intrinsic dignity that all of us has that cannot be taken away from us, that we need to value uh, especially when we're in our own dying process and nearing death. Thanks, Paul. Um, it's my hope that uh, from a practical standpoint, we're going to talk about how we can help you preserve your attributive dignity and how you can appreciate your intrinsic dignity as we, as we talk. So a couple more comments, and we're going to move to a case study. But I, I, the question comes, what makes our decision-making distinctly Christian? I mean, we're doing decision-making at the end of life, right? What makes your decision-making distinctly Christian? Or what makes our care distinctly Christian? It's a great question. Are great questions. And I just want to give you some thoughts that, that relate to this. And they're just, um, they relate to a faith-based perspective on living and dying. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are new creations. Jesus has conquered death. We are reconciled to God, the judge, forever through Christ. We are heirs to the promise, sons of God, citizens of heaven. We do not face separation from God at death. Rather, we are drawn into a closer union with God at death. So we do not fear death. Our hope is beyond death. We therefore humbly rest our fate in the hands of God. Now, you can shout back at me. That's easily said. But those are truths. And those, that is what makes our decision-making and our caregiving distinctly Christian. So let's move to the next slide, please. And I'd like to tell you a story about Marlena. So Marlena, let me pull, let me pull mine up because I can't see that far. Marlene is a 76-year-old widowed woman who suffers with dementia and progressive failure to thrive. Failure to thrive is you don't have an appetite, you can't or won't eat, and you're losing weight. Due to her inability to care for herself, she's moved in with her daughter and son-in-law. Her daughter's name is Molly. Both of them work full-time. Marlena also has congestive heart failure and end-stage degenerative arthritis in her spine, which causes her a great deal of pain. Prior to moving in with her daughter, she was diagnosed with depression, severe depression, for which she was treated with an antidepressant. So, panel, 
Does Mar- is Marlena a candidate for palliative or curative comfort care? Absolutely. And the whole family is. Her daughter, Molly, needs to be a part of the process, too. Okay. So, so which of the problems, uh, dementia, failure to strive, a congestive heart failure, etc., which of those problems would be um, benefited by palliative care? Really all of them. Okay, so um, in her case, uh, how would you provide that care? To get to know Marlena, and I'd want to get to know Molly too, and I'd spend time with them so that I could, even though she has dementia, I could um, learn what she was like before and what she liked, and Molly could get help me get to know her. Okay, so um, what what is the question you want to ask? Well, it says in here that she has a great deal of pain, so mm-hmm. you would want to know at least from a physical standpoint. How does she want her pain controlled? What, what pain level is acceptable to her? And you can at least move, go from there in the physical. Okay, so she's demented, though. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we don't know if she can uh, communicate. Probably she can. She's not going to be able to communicate as well as if she was fully cogni- you know, coherent. But uh, do you have ways of measuring pain in that setting? I think it's an ind- individual case, but someone with dementia still can clearly let you know what their pain level is, where okay. it is, and, and you know, what relieves it. So you can still get the answers to those questions in someone with dementia. Okay. So would an advanced directive be helpful here? It would be really helpful. It would be one of the things I'd want to ask Molly. Have you talked about these things, and does she have an advanced directive? It would be great if she has one. If she doesn't have one, I'd still want to know from Molly, have you discussed these things? Have you talked about it? What was your mom like before the dementia? Okay. Let's move to the next slide. So, unfortunately, Marlena's condition is steadily declining, and her pain was uncontrolled. The -the over-the-counter medicine, uh, pain medicine she had been taking was ineffective, and she was unable to articulate her discomfort. Marlena would spend most of her time pacing in her daughter's home as prolonged sitting was more painful to her. She's fallen twice uh, since moving in with her daughter and she's incurred a broken wrist from one of the falls. So somebody uh, take a stab at the different kinds of suffering you would perceive Marlena is is going through. Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> well, she's certainly going through physical suffering. Okay. But I would imagine a great deal of her suffering is emotional. Okay. I'm sure she's feeling alone and um, missing the presence of people and a connection with who she has been all along herself. Besides, both her kids work full-time, so she probably is, you know alone the majority of her time. Okay. Any other thoughts? You know, I, I see a fair number of patients with dementia, and um, it's, it's a conundrum. They, they tend to want to stay in their own home. They may be a widow or a widower, and uh, sometimes the first hurdle is to get them, because they really cannot live by themselves, is to get them into the family's home. 
Uh, but it's a disorienting thing because they're, they're used to, they've stayed in their own home for 30, 40 years and now they're suddenly in a different home. They may get confused, have trouble finding their way around. Um, and some patients with dementia just tend to pace too. And now, now we're looking at safety issues here. Um, she's really by herself all day. Her daughter and son-in-law are working and mm -hmm. there's no one looking after her. So safety is a big issue now. Okay, so she's got physical pains, clearly. She probably has uh, emotional pain and, and she has fear. She has loneliness. Her dementia and her depression both will cause her to be disoriented, not understand why her daughter's leaving and her son-in-law is leaving her every day. So there's, there's social pain. So there's lots of different suffering going on in Molly's life now. Um, what, would, what would palliative care look like if, say, uh, FCN went into her home? What we would do is an assessment and meet with the family and Marlena and say, and just look at who could come around. And that's what palliative care is, really, is putting a group of resources around a person to provide for their care. Um, so are there neighbors who might get involved? Are there other family members that you could call on? Um, could we come and sit with, or people from the church come and sit with Marlena for an hour or two a day? Okay, and that's done with or without advanced directive. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. Um, let's move to the next slide. So Marlena has frequent crying spells now and a very, and very little appetite. She's lost 20 pounds over the course of the last year. Marlena is miserable. She's trapped in a failing body and unable to communicate her wants and needs to her family. She's lost hope. Additionally, she had never wanted to be a burden to her family. So this may look very interesting and differently in different settings, but Marlena may not, her, her daughter Molly may not appreciate all of what her mom's going through. She may just lay in bed all day. She may sit in a chair beside the window. Um, how, how would you now describe her her suffering, or what is she going through? I, I would want to talk to Molly and find out. They've obviously talked because somehow they have a feeling that she doesn't want to be a burden. So Molly and Marlena has, must have talked in the past that at least Molly knows that much. But... Um, yeah, I don't, I'd want to get to know as much as I could about Marlena, but I would love to ask her if she had an advanced directive because that would be a good starting place. Are there measures that you can take to help her with her appetite? That could be Definitely. But it's only going to get worse because, if you remember, she has the diagnosis of failure to thrive, so there's going to be a chronic loss of appetite, a chronic malnutrition, but... I want to point out that Molly absolutely needs a lot of direction and teaching here because Molly doesn't know. Mm -hmm. So I don't, do we know if she has advanced directive? Is that the, the golden question? I don't we think don't? we have, I don't think I've said anything about advanced okay, directive Okay, I'm, I'm trying to find that out maybe. No. But um, so we need teaching number one done with Molly to find out that question and um, maybe to guide her 
in this and, and do teaching on the diagnosis because her appetite is not going to get better. And she's, she is already, she has been declining in the previous two slides and now on this third one, she's at a very pivotal point and it's gonna go absolutely downhill from here. So, go ahead, Paul. I was gonna say, it's, it's no wonder Marlene is, is depressed. She has lost control of her entire life. Um, she's gone from her own home. Um, she's already lost her husband. She's losing her memory. Um, it's just no wonder that she is depressed. And I, and medications can do just so much, but there is that you know existential loss here that uh, it doesn't seem to. It's not that it's not being addressed at this point. Well, we don't even know if she wants medicine. I'm sorry. I'll say that again. But I think there's some assumptions we're having is that. It, in this um, particular case, we don't necessarily even know that Marlena even wants anything treated. And I think that's the driving underlying question we're getting at is that we could uh, force feed her. We could give her medications that could help her to eat if she wants that. Mm -hmm. um, we could uh, control her pain. We could give her so much morphine that she goes to sleep if she wants that. We could give her emotional support so that... Um, uh, she has a, a, we could even build a mini of her home inside of her family's home, if, you know, depending on what she wanted. Obviously, financial things probably pay a little to that too, but um, if she wants that, we could put her in an environment that would be more stimulating for her if, we want, if she wants that. But in a blank slate like this, not having a knowledge of what she wants uh, ahead of time, just because we can doesn't mean we should and doesn't mean that she wants it. Mm -hmm. So you feel played, right? But let's move to the next slide. Prior to Mylena's decline, she had been an active member in her, com in her uh, church community. She enjoyed attending church services and other activities within her faith community. Mylena loved reading and studying her Bible and, in fact, was passionate about the works of C.S. Lewis. Now, if you knew this, how would this tailor your care? Learning just that information would just tell me right away that as a church body, we can help this woman. We have people who could read to her from C.S. Lewis, who could pray with her, who would come around her and um, spend time with her. So as a body, we could, we could help meet her needs. We can also assume certain beliefs about mm -hmm. death and the afterlife and mm -hmm. the body that she would hold given the community she was in and those who probably knew her and knew what she believed. That would be very helpful. What about uh, addressing her dignity? You addressed it. You, you alluded to it, Paul, but... Um... Sure. I, yeah. I, I had mentioned the loss of independence, uh, loss of control, um, she, they, they've taken her car keys away. She can't get out and, and go anywhere. So she's suffering numerous losses. And um, so I, I think, you know, when we talk about palliative or hospice care, we're always fighting against that decline. We're trying to maintain someone's dignity. If we can't restore it, we try to do what we can to maintain it. And, and we can do it from the medical standpoint but really, there's not a whole lot we can do 
for this lady medically. Mm -hmm. So this is someone that really needs a lot of love. She needs supportive care from church family, friends. Um, I mean, she's just crying out for for people to come around. So, so we didn't say what the time frame is here. What could the time frame be? What's the spectrum? It could be a slow process over a decade. Yeah. And for a lot of people it is who have dementia. Mm-hmm. Could be last week. Yeah, it could have been over a week to a month. It could be mm-hmm. years. What's the impact on Molly and her husband? They may be very, very worn out and not with a lot of energy and resources within them. So give me the next slide, please. So the first scenario we've been talking about, Marlena had not had an advance directive in place, had not discussed her wishes with her family prior to a decline. And you can kind of feel the angst and the frustration that we would have and you would have caring for a loved one. Or you can put yourself in Marlena's place and, and appreciate the quality of care you might be missing based on what you prefer. Take the next slide, please. Well, in fact, Marlena did have an advanced directive in place. She had discussed her wishes with her daughter prior to decline and, in fact, had made her daughter her health care agent. And I actually have Marlena's advanced directive here. And let me read to you some things from it, and I want to know how that might change what you're, what, how you feel about it. I'm just going to spin through. She did make Molly her uh, first choice as agent. On her uh, first wish, she crossed out nursing home. She said at the bottom, my health care agent may not admit me to a nursing home. For the second wish, which has to do with uh, the, the immediate dying uh, period, she said, see, I want my chronic arthritis pain to be controlled with whatever medication or routes which accomplish this, even if it requires scheduled long-term morphine. Can, you do, can that be done at home? Okay. The next page, she says, she checks all the boxes that I want to have life support treatment. Every one of them, whether she's close to death, brain damaged, or in coma. That's her wishes. Now the, 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 the fifth page, which is uh, wishes three and four, she crossed out, I wish to have religious readings and well-loved poems read aloud to me, and she wrote in, I wish to have the Bible and C.S. Lewis read out loud to me. The next, she circled the last uh, point, which is about options for hospice, and she said, If my doctor believes my condition leaves me with six months or less to live, I consent to hospice care, and my health care agent can decide where I should receive this. In the fourth wish, she pretty much left it alone, but at the bottom she wrote, I would like my lady's Bible study to visit me, to read scripture to me, and to sit with me when they can. So, does that change your strategy? It's so helpful. I mean, that's where you'll start because she has already told me her Bible study, ladies. I might not have known she was in a Bible study 
and Molly might not have mentioned it, but it was, it's great to have that, that kind of information because it tells you exactly where to go. And it tells you what, you what she wants done. And we can't assume because we might have filled that advanced directive in a completely different way than her. You know, you know I hear these ads about people pre-planning their funeral, but they don't pre-plan their death. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's kind of um, a neat uh, setup there. So from a, from a, from a, a care standpoint, um, how does this uh, allow uh, Marlena to get into hospice per se? I mean, how would that evolve and what would Molly do? Who would bring that up with her? Well, her daughter might bring that up with her because she lives with her and she now knows from the advanced directive, although she probably knew before the advanced directive that yeah. her mom wanted hospice care and one thing I want to bring out is without the hospice, without the advanced directive, Molly may have known each and every one of these wishes about Marlena, but because it wasn't written down, M Molly might not realize that these are dignity issues and they mm -hmm. may not have carried out. They're both working, so she may not have you know, helped to navigate her Bible study coming. So there's a lot of things that would have fallen through the cracks, and you can see how how Marlena would not have gotten the dignity that that she wanted, and even that Molly wanted her to have. But now that she had that she designated what her wishes are, she spoke with them to Molly. M Molly will be able to to carry that out, and Molly will will also get a sense of well-being because she is honoring her mom's dignity. Yeah, and I know we're getting. Uh we're losing time here, but um, I, I will just say that this document um, would be very appropriate for Molly to bring it out when her mother moves in the first week. And she can look at it and, and, and start planning, and she can call up uh, the church uh, and get uh, Faith Community Nursing involved, or she can call Richardson and get palliative care or hospice care going, and it really enables Molly to stay a daughter and not a caregiver, which is so important for Molly, and she doesn't get burned out. And, and so the point is that this document can be um, activated and valuable for months and months, not just the last week or days of life. Well, I know we're short. Uh, let's uh, perhaps go to questions. To Q&A time, and so if you keep the question focused in a way in which it will be relevant to everybody, and Rob has a mic over here, and Pastor Gillen has a mic over here, so just wave your hand, and we'll try to take the questions and handle them in a way that uh, will minister to the needs. While we're waiting for questions, is this on? Yeah. While we're waiting for questions, I think we talk about dignity, and Paul, you did a nice presentation on what dignity is. I, and another maybe less abstract way to approach it would be as a, a sense of uh, self-worth or a sense of valuable, not just valuable to yourself, value to your community. And these things that um, were presented tonight, the attention and the detail and remembering who she was when she was who she wanted to be and um, being with her and making her comfortable and see, responding to her needs are all ways where you can show someone um, that they are worthwhile, they're worth the time, they're worth the interest, they're worth the investment, even in their dying hours, Thank or you. days, or weeks, or months, or whatever. Okay, we'll start with the question okay. over here. Um, 
Um, uh, we've experienced three out of four parents in one lengthy, very lengthy uh, uh, nursing home care, 10 years. We had her living with us for three years before that. And if you're both working and there's limited income to support having somebody come in, um, there's also the fact that if you're not there, you don't know what she's doing. Over-medicating, um, my mom put um, Tupperware on the stove to cook something. These things, if you're not there or if somebody's not there 24-7, you know, it's, it's not best for them either. There are a few uh, options in the community. It just feels like it's not on. Um, there are a few options actually in the community. One of them, is the gathering place still open? Um, there are a couple of, yeah. I, I guess, it's mm -hmm. almost like mm -hmm. a daycare day, uh, adult for daycare. adults where they can go and be during the day and it's relatively, you know, depending on some social factors and stuff, so the needs of whatever else is available. And I also say is like, you know, what a great role for the church to come together and invest in each other. Is very different than hospice. We come alongside the person. We don't provide nursing care. We can't do it, but we we can tell the person what resources are available to them and get them to those resources. There are other comfort things that we can do for them, but um, finding the resources in the community is a very important thing. And that's one of the things that we want to do in faith community nursing is an assessment so that we can communicate with the family and the physician and then get that person to the resources. And I do think, very fortunately, in the last few years in, in our community, there are skilled facilities for people who have dementia or uh, handicaps like that that they can be safely taken care of while uh, people are home working. Very good. Another question? Uh, doesn't the five wishes have to be witnessed by several people? Is that being pointed out and and also I, I was thinking um, how do you update this say you did this and it's 10 years from now you might want to update it how do you update it yeah it does have to be witnessed any one of us could answer that question it has to be witnessed by two people who are not mentioned as your health care agent or your relatives I believe um, it can be updated and in fact, it should be, because as we looked at ours that were about 20 years old, there were things that I had changed my mind. And this, these sessions have made me update my five wishes and make it more appropriate for what my feelings are now. Yeah, you can, and you can simply take a second copy and redo it, and the, the, the most recent date is what will be honored. Or you can take a different colored pen and clarify that date in the beginning and go through and make changes and, and just sign at the end. So there's, there's a couple of options for you there. If you, if you do not have family members uh, that can take responsibility for your care, where do those papers go if you don't have extended family or what do you do with that? Who, who gets it? Who can... Do you mean the advanced directive itself? I mean the advanced directives and, you know, mm -hmm. the six wishes and what you want done. Who handles that if you don't have anybody? Right. You, want to, you definitely want to uh, 
um, have a copy go to whoever you designate as your health care power of attorney. So that person absolutely needs a copy. You need to keep a copy. And then you should give a copy to your physician. And now with electronic medical record, it can usually get entered into the record. So uh, even if you've been admitted to the hospital, we can access your records from the hospital. Of five wishes, there's a. It says a wallet card. You cut that part. You cut it right out, and in there it says my document is, and you carry that in your wallet so that when someone is looking for your advance directive in your home, it says it's in the top drawer of my desk, yeah. and they can find it. It's also some people find it useful to give a copy to their attorney, and sorry, Gare, also to their pastor. <laughs> oh. um, I think my comment is on the caregiver side, as the health agent, the health care agent, you don't realize um, how lost you are in the system without some kind of a contact tech point. So I appreciate the, the faith community nursing as a starting point. Um, and um, it truly is as a, the healthcare agent, you are their advocate. And you need to kind of figure out, A, what they need, whatever that means, and then how you're going to accomplish it and what people you can utilize, because you can't do it all yourself without total burnout. So um, I, I appreciate the information that's being brought. I think the other aspect of that, this is a document that will empower the agent they, they, they're, they're directed very clearly through it. And, and as you can imagine, in, 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 the, in the setting of illness and chronic illness, it gets difficult because they may be not just one daughter, but three daughters, and there's an uncle, and there's a brother. And a lot of people have talked with her about what her wishes were. This document really is, under, is accepted by the, the medical community, the legal community, that, that, gives you, that empowers the agent to make decisions. One of the things I think about the five wishes is it is a gift that you can give your husband or your the husband can give to the wife. It's a gift. It, they will not even appreciate it until they're ever in the situation they need it. Or it's a gift to your children. It, this is really a favor that you can do for them. It's something great you can do for them. Just going off of that as well, one of the things we cringe at is when there isn't any direction or there isn't anybody named in the advanced directive and things, and you're at the hospital, and dad is um, on a ventilator, and he's not doing well, and then all the siblings come together, and it becomes World War III. And, you know, it's, you love dad more, I love dad more, I'm going to do this, I love dad more, we want to shut it off, we want to, and then the last thing you want to leave your family with is a divisive, is a divisive disaster. And you just see families, you know, Families around death and funerals and things, just, it's the same kind of, it, it, it's, it, it's heartbreaking to see. When you see a family bickering about who gets grandma's ring and dad's silverware, but when you see it in the hospital and dad is still here, and this is where it's going to start, his legacy is going to be that you guys are not going to get along and you're going to hold grudge for the next 100 years. I mean, but here we have the opportunity of not letting our enemy have a foothold in that dissension in a family giving them some direction, saying, you know what, this is what dad wants. We can come together and an opportunity to really bring uh, families uh, together in an, a united place. And actually, the dying and death process can actually be a very healthy thing for a family and can really sort of 
be an opportunity for that family to put down differences and, and um, reconcile. And it's a very beautiful thing when this happens. We have another question over here. Is there anything that um, overrides the five wishes? Her first wish is to not be placed in a nursing home. However, I think if she, the paramedics are called because she overdoses or she sets a house on fire and because Molly and her husband either can't or won't stay home because of their jobs and you know the law steps in, is there something that overrides that that allows them to place her for safety reasons? Well, yes, but then you have to go through the court and it's called guardianship. And um, so then the court would appoint a guardian then who would be placing that, that person in a nursing home. So it would be, don't ask me what kind of protective placement it would, After how that would go under uh, according to the law. But um, yeah, she would, she would need to have a guardian. There, there might be the financial means, though, in that family to not ever have her go to a nursing home because maybe financially they could afford to have 24-hour care in their home, and perhaps that's why she put it on her advance directive. And rather, than, rather than safety issues, one of the most common things that we see people actually getting admitted to nursing homes to actually has more to do with their mobility and their continence. Um, in addition to safety. And so family members oftentimes just get distraught with their ability to take care of people in the home if they can't get mom out of bed and mom soils herself. It's the faith community nursing and have volunteers from the church come in and, and, and care for your loved one. That is always possible. In Marlena's case, she did give a little loophole where she said that Molly could make the decision about hospice and where she would be receiving that. And so if she was at the point where we would designate her as uh, appropriate for hospice, we could put her at Richardson, for instance, which would be 24-hour uh, uh, quality care. Or the loophole, she didn't want to be in a nursing home, but if there also could be, if she, she could designate where she gets that hospice care if she put her in a nursing home to receive yeah. the hospice care, but yeah. I'm not sure if that is appropriate or not. It wouldn't be honoring her wish. Yes, how do you deal with, a situation we had, mom wanted to do everything herself, and we could see her not able to, and we could see dad not getting everything he needed. How do you help that caregiver um, make the step to get to more of those palliative hospice kind of situations? When you find out, let me know. <laughs> it is a tough part of medicine. Um, moving people to a level of acceptance or awareness of their need. Um, I think, in my experience, it's most valuable that I start introducing the situation early and often as, as, as situations arise. And so they, they, it's almost a joke with some patients that come in and they're, yeah, I'm still living in my apartment alone, and I haven't burned myself, I haven't burned it down yet, and... Because at some point I'm going to have to say it's my medical advice that you be uh, not living alone. Uh, but I don't know how you guys handle it. Well, I think palliative care, again, is bringing a group of people around that family. And so it's the physician and perhaps his nurse or it's the family members themselves, perhaps the son and daughter. And then the person who's coming in, the faith community nurse, you know, talking together because that's a real process for that caregiver to realize they can't they just are not capable of doing it all themselves 
And often you can get a family member in, involved, seeing that she was trying to do way more than she was capable of and, and not meeting dad's needs, that he finally got to where he needed to help. We have time for about two more questions from those who have not yet asked a question. It was absolutely phenomenal, the little things that can be done for a patient wrapped in a blanket, and this little old lady kept saying to Susie, the caretaker, my husband is late coming after me. Uh, couldn't, couldn't you do something about that? And the caretaker now had heard it just enough times to say, honey, I think you're a little early. He isn't due here yet. But it is time for the peppermint tea. And suddenly it was time for one big brute that was in there who never said anything to have his shower. But the girl who was in charge knew what was going to happen. They just hadn't figured out how to stop him. He'd get in to the bathroom, and the first thing he looked at it was his picture, him in a mirror, and he started screaming. Well, one day, this little nurse did a little peak job, and she noticed what he did almost automatically. He'd look at that mirror. So she just went over and she slapped a towel over the mirror, and he never screamed again because he never saw himself. But there are some very simple things I would think that could be done if the person who is the caregiver really is intent on caring for that person, in this case, quite a few. And she was congratulated because she took the phenomenal feeling of, here we go again, away. Thank you. you can do for, if you have a person who's dying in your home or you're with them in their home, is surround them with their favorite things, whether it's the quilts they've made or photos of their family or books they love to read, whatever was important to them, to bring that around them in their last days is really important. Right. Children and pets and animals have a, a very um, um, medicative or soothing effect on people who are even demented. It's a Something interesting, though, is that I wanted... There's a little aspect that we probably should make a note of is that in the context of hospice and palliative care, most of our discussion really has been about sort of the uh, aged end-of-life issues, but there is actually hospice available for all ages mm -hmm. um, in different communities, even perinatal or antenatal uh, hospice for babies with fetal anomalies. And uh, what a great blessing uh, just in showing dignity on somebody not even born. So as a perspective of, mm -hmm. of knowing these um, things out there that it, this isn't just something that happens when you're 70, 80, or 90. This is something that is a relevant discussion for people all the way down to zero. Thank you. I, I'm glad we did that because I'm even aware of pediatric forms of hospice and the critical aspect mm -hmm. of that as well. We're going to do a, a summary perhaps. Jeff, is there anything particular you want to highlight before I close with a brief devotional thought? paperwork-wise, otherwise, and so forth? No, I just um, would encourage you to realize that we are 
um, a community of believers, and uh, we have lots of resources in our church. So I would encourage you, if you have further questions, to seek out people who you're comfortable with and talk further about this. And, and I would love for you to update or complete your advanced directive. That's what I would say. Thank you so much. And at the very end tonight, again, we'll make ourselves available for further discussion, conversation. There's others in the medical community out here as well in the audience, and I know that they're more than willing to think these things through with you. A closing thought. This comes from Jesus Christ, where he's speaking in Matthew chapter 25. It's the story regarding the sheep and the goats, where he then says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Listen. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. Let's stand together. Thanking you now, Father, for the panel that's here and outstanding people and congregation who are equipped medically as well, their backgrounds to talk further with individuals. Thank you for the wisdom that's found here collectively. We draw from you the God who illuminates our minds and our hearts through your word and the working of the Holy Spirit to be more effective as a congregation ministering internally and externally. Father, for those right now who perhaps in one way, shape, or form find themselves somewhere in the midst of this discussion tonight, minister to that heart, minister to that body, equip them even further to be able to carry on quality conversations with the medical personnel they are, they are working with. May the result be, Father, that you're honored and that even greater opportunities for ministry take place as a result. So, Father, your blessing now upon each one here, and I thank you for them. In Christ's name, amen. God bless and good night.